Welcome to the Food Junkies Recovery Story Podcast. Here we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of everyday people actively working on their recovery from food addiction. I hope to inspire you and increase your awareness about recovery from food addiction. Here we will talk about personal stories of recovery and the many ways to live in recovery. We will focus on the various solutions so that you can choose the best option for yourself. I want to encourage you to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make changes for yourself, tell others about your changes, and our message of hope will spread. Hey, Food Junkies Recovery Stories listeners. I thought we'd do something exciting and fun today. You are going to hear what happens after the show, before the show. So we're going to jump in and talk to Clarissa. Hey, CJ, thank you for having me back. And I did think it was so interesting. And I thought it was also important to share that, you know, after we did the interview, what I found was I was so, while I was telling my story, it was strange. I felt not connected to it. I was like, why am I having a hard time doing this? And I even after spoke to my mom and I was like, I think my story was boring. And she's like, three treatment centers, major car accident, two DUIs, and uh, addicted to every single substance. How could that be boring? And of course, we always amplify the the worst parts of addiction, right? And so I really sat with that and was reflecting on it. And then the next day, I was out for a walk and I was like, oh, I get it. I get what it is. I am not connected to that story anymore. That's my story, but I don't have that same emotional attachment to it because I'm healing. And so I, it doesn't really feel like my life anymore. It's things that happen to me, but it's not who I am now. And so I immediately picked up my phone and Facebook messaged CJ and literally started crying about how happy I was and how beautiful this moment was and what a gift recovery has been. And so I just thought it was really important to share that with everyone that, you know, even in however many years of recovery I've been in, I think we're going up on six now, it's of food addiction anyways, many other years from other substances, that the healing just continues to happen. And it was very interesting because, you know, I was dating someone this summer and he's like, Do you, will it, will there ever be a time in your life where like that story won't be your story? And I had no idea really what he was talking about, but like now I get it. It's this freedom of, and this confidence that I never had previously because these were all the things that happened to me. And then the, these were all the, this means who I am. And now it's like, I don't own any of that. I don't carry any of that with me. And that's probably the most, that was one of the most meaningful things that, or awareness or realizations I've had in recovery to date. And so I just really wanted to thank you for asking me to share my story. And I haven't even listened to the episode again, but I also will link some previous times I shared my story in case anybody else wants to hear like the nitty gritty details, because I've definitely shared them before. But uh, but yeah, and, and I think that is the best part of this podcast is people get to share their experience. They get to share, you know, what it was like. And 
you know, they can go back a few years later and reflect on it and see how much they've grown. Well, I want to tell you how much I appreciate you. That message that you sent me really touched my heart and it really made me feel like I'm part of your community. And I know that I am. I know that we're good friends and stuff like that. But just you being that vulnerable and telling me how you've, I felt amazing afterwards. And the fact that we can sit here and have a conversation about it is just uh, a testament to how wonderful this community is actually and how warm and caring everybody is. And I really appreciate you sharing all of your heart with me. So thank you. You're welcome. Here's the episode. Well, thanks, Carissa, for agreeing to be interviewed today. I am super excited that you are here because, of course, you are my mentor. And so I have been looking forward to this. So we're going to jump right in and get started. How does that sound? That sounds perfect. And I'm so excited to sit here with you. And I hope that today's interview helps somebody who's listening. Absolutely. I think it will because... I know that personal stories really resonated with me, and they still do, and so I'm excited to hear your personal story, which leads me to the first question. Can you share with our listeners your personal journey of addiction and recovery? Yeah, so thanks so much for asking. Um, Certainly, it's been a long journey for me and started at a younger age. You know, I've always been athletic. Um, and so food and body were always a bit at the forefront for me and fitting in. And so I think that I was always comparing, comparing body to other people that I went to school with, but, uh, I would say that my earliest issues with addiction probably started with alcohol use and just in terms of not having a limit on that. I was first exposed uh, in grade eight at a Bible camp. And, you know, usually people's first exposure is, you know, oh, like I got drunk or whatever it is, but we just went all the next level. And I think we drank whole bottles and I don't remember the next few days and went to high school hungover uh, on one of my first, you know, days in a new school where everyone else got their stomach pumped. So it, it apparently I, I had, did not have a line for when enough was enough. And I think that really defines my journey of addiction so well, because there never really was that line. It was always about more. So when I went to university um, in, I was 18 and uh, my roommate at that time definitely was very thin. She mentioned to me that it would be great if we could, you know, wear the same size clothes. And what I heard her say is you're too fat. And, and so I immediately did, I knew at that time I had no idea what to eat or how to eat. And so I thought I'd just stop eating because it didn't make sense to me um, how else I would lose weight. I certainly also started exercising a lot. I I was on the campus at UFT and I started walking all over the city. You know, we didn't have trackers back in that day, but I would have probably broke the tracker because I was walking so much. And it was really like a very lonely, isolating experience. And I would say that it fully developed into a form of anorexia where I was consuming, you know, maybe a can of tuna and mustard a day. And so 
obviously my parents noticed that I was struggling as I was dropping a large amount of weight. And so they, you know, when I got home from university that year, it really was about, okay, what are we going to do about this? How are you going to start eating? I went to some eating disorder treatment and they were trying to get me to like record my food and eat toast and eat other things that I didn't feel like I had any control over. And so there I just, you know, was really, it, it reaffirmed to me that I was never going to get this figured out. And that if this was the treatment, this was, this was really hopeless. And that was really the, my only experience with eating disorder treatment and recovery. Um, from there, I think that I just really understood that this was something I was going to have for the rest of my life. And, you know, it, it was definitely something that was a challenge, but it was just one piece of me. And I threw myself into work. I threw myself into school. I started in, I got a degree in hospitality and I started working in the food and beverage industry. And I was really blessed to get a job um, as a manager right out of like one of my first positions coming out of university. And, you know, that was, I really felt like I could thrive in that. And because I was working so much, I didn't always have to think about my food, but I also started, you know, drinking a lot more. That was very normalized at that time. And, you know, it really became my life where I just worked and we partied and, you know, the food was kind of on the back burner at that time. It wasn't really a focus until, um, you know, essentially I would say that I then became an owner of a restaurant or a general manager of another restaurant. And I was working too much and drinking too much. And then I was in a major car accident in 2005. And through that, I then got put on prescription pills for recovery from that, where I had to have multiple surgeries. And then I became dependent on those pills. And so you know, it was really, if I look back now, it was always the food. It was always, you know, then it switched to like alcohol, then it switched to the pills. And then, you know, at, at some point I realized that in order to get off the pills, I needed to increase my alcohol use. And through, I guess, all these years, which I forgot to mention, I still was struggling with food and my relationship with food. I was just managing it with exercise. I was managing it with bulimia. I was managing it with laxatives. So it was still there, but I didn't know there was any other way. Like nobody had ever offered another way. It really was kind of sold to me like, this is your thing. And so, you know, hopefully you can figure out a way to manage it. And so it was, it wasn't really anything I ever talked to anybody about. Um, because I think the other substances were just so damaging and made so much noise that the food piece, although it was like a really awful, terrible piece, it it was in the background. So to get off the prescription pills, I used more alcohol. I became dependent on both and then decided to go cold turkey off of them. And that was not a, a very wise decision, knowing very little about substance use disorder at that time, even though I came from a medical family. I It was all pretty much done in secret. Um, although I think a lot of people knew I was struggling in that way, wasn't hiding it very well. 
Um, so a few days of hallucinating, I ended up in emergency psychiatry at my father's hospital and they were trying to, you know, get me to sleep because I hadn't slept for 10 days and yeah, it was really messy, but coming out of that and coming through that, I was able to, um, determine like, I didn't ever want to go back to those medications, which of course, at that time, nobody really said, Hey, these are addictive. And I was on them for two years. And even coming from a medical family, no one really said anything about it. And when I was on them, they were magic because they took away hunger. And so I didn't need food and alcohol did the same thing for me, but that's only you, what you see in hindsight. I never really understood it while it was happening. So then I really believe that my main problem was my alcohol use disorder. So I ended up going to treatment in, I think it was 2010, maybe for uh, substance use and there, and not by choice. You know, none of it was like, hey, I would really like to help and to get sober. It was, you're destroying your life. You're destroying your career. My At the time, my husband and my parents kind of did a joint intervention on me and took me to treatment. And I, I really was resentful at them for it. But it was the first time I slowed down, the first time I actually met people who I could have some real vulnerable conversations with that that first time I learned about addiction, first time I cried for like a whole day in the shower. And it, you know, even at that time, I don't think I knew how meaningful that first treatment was, but it it really allowed me to get sober and see what sobriety could feel like. It wasn't the easiest transition back into life because shortly after I got divorced, um, and and still wasn't really sure how to navigate the world without my coping substances that I'd used the whole time. And and I think then the flare up started again with the, you know, uh, food issues. So back to some of those behaviors. And but you know, I was still navigating life. I was still working in the field of addictions. I was I got an, another social work degree. I had gotten addictions degree from McMaster. So I would do really well for like eight months and then I would have a return to use. And they were devastating. They were shameful. And at the time I was in the world of 12 step and AA and that medical model and day one start over. And uh, like in hindsight now, that wasn't a very loving way to approach my recovery. Um, and so I, I like to try and do it differently with the people that I work with today, but it was what it was for me at that time. And, and I needed those eight months of abstinence in between those return to uses, because I, I knew that that was, that made me started to, to crave recovery and what I wanted from it, but I could never figure out that missing piece of like, why couldn't I just get what other people seem to understand so fluently and that really came to me when I met Vera in 2014, I think it was, or maybe 2016 at uh, Homewood or Homestead. And no, 
at, it was Homestead at Renaissance, I think is what it was called. And, you know, I kind of shared my story with her about my eating disorders, my alcohol, my substance use. And she looked at me and she said, have you ever heard of food addiction? Like she was typing at the computer and then she just stopped and turned and looked at me like, aha. (laughs) And it was, it was, I was like, no, I have no idea what you're talking about. And I mean, now I've worked in the field for 10 years at this point and nobody had ever said anything about food addiction. So she handed me her book, you know, she signed it. She said, these are some meetings. So I started to read the book. I started to get interested in it. And um, I was like, this is worthwhile exploring. And so from there, then I ended up going to Infact, which was the International Food Addiction Training Counseling Program. And that was really where I got food sober. And so it was kind of a trick in a way, because they, they tell you, you're like going to see what it's like for people in treatment, but then they don't tell you, you actually have to eat and do all the things that the clients are. And that was terrifying for me. So also it was like, I was in Iceland, it was a blizzard. I couldn't even leave the treatment center if I wanted to. And then I had to eat a thousand times more food than I'd eaten ever at each meal for five days. Now I still woke up and did CrossFit in the morning with some people I convinced to join me in the gym. I mean, I I didn't need, I couldn't give up all my coping, but by day three, the lights really came on. And I will tell you that the urge to purge came up on both day one and day two. And it just so happened that, you know, the bathrooms were in a place where They were just, it wasn't something I would be able to hide. And I was like, well, you can do anything for five days. I mean, I've been through 10 days of withdrawal off alcohol and drugs. So it's like, this is not, we can do this. And by day three, it just changed. It was like the lights came on. I felt like I could think clearly. I could sleep better. And shortly after that, I realized that it, eating this way and nourishing myself is also what managed to make my cravings for alcohol go away. And maybe that was my missing piece. And, and literally it, it, I feel like it changed my whole life. And so from that, it was like, how do I share this with people and how do I give the recovery I've experienced to other people who might be struggling? Even at that time, I think I was really focused on like the alcohol use disorder community, the missing piece of that. Um, But then I found so many people were still in the eating disorder world struggling. And so I thought I'll start a practice. And yeah, that was, that was my story. And now I work in the field. (laughs) That's awesome. I like what you said when you were talking about craving recovery. I like that part. And um, that took a while for you to crave the recovery, even when you thought you were in recovery is what I'm hearing. Yeah, absolutely. I I think that certainly is because, I mean, in the beginning, it's not easy. It's not fun. It's not comfortable. It's all new. It's like you're in this brand new baby body trying to figure out, like, how do I do life with all the ways that I used to manage it, knowing that you can't use those ways anymore. Yeah. Yeah. That's for sure. I I think that that was my experience as well. I also did the alcohol thing, but my, when I was out, I never liked the taste of it. I liked the taste of it like for a little bit, but then I just, I didn't like the way it made me feel. So I was a food addict. I just started using the alcohol 
during COVID. So I related to that part. So I think that's basically what you were saying in your story that you started using alcohol so that you, but it probably was the food from the beginning. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, definitely. I think I just had that propensity towards more of anything that would create dopamine for me, because I think I may have been like, you know, reward sensitive to these things. When I look back at, at, my history. And definitely when I drank, it shut off the noise of like the body image thoughts. It shut off. What should I eat? What shouldn't I eat? And it, I felt like it took away hunger. So it solved that problem for sure. Except that it also caused problems like, you know, losing jobs, losing relationships, losing my license. Um, so at that time, when you look at the level of destruction that the one substance is causing, that's the one you focus on. Well, all right. Well, actually you answered my second question. So that worked out really well. So we'll just move on. Check, 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 check. We'll just move on to the next one, which is, I think this is really interesting. Who have been your biggest influences on your recovery journey? Yeah, I think that I have had so many. Um, definitely, you know, Vera had a huge impact on me. I, I really consider her the person that saved my life as she opened my eyes to the world of food addiction. I also think, you know, somebody, a book I read by Holly Whitaker, which really for me demonized the substance over the person. Um, helped me reduce shame when it came to my substance use disorder and that, you know, that it's not us that's wrong. It's, it's the society we live in that promotes all of these substances. I also feel like early on and I did some 12, um, AA, 12 step AA recovery and my sponsor was Trish and she was just this beautiful human and we had so much fun and she, I could just be me. And we, like, she made that stage of early recovery for me beautiful. And so many people I've met along the way, um, in recovery have been my recovery influences. It, it hasn't necessarily been these like gurus. It's been other humans holding space and capacity for me to be me and like allowing me to experiment with what my recovery is. Okay. That's awesome. Yeah. The day-to-day -day people, the people that are in your corner. That's awesome. Yeah. How do you define recovery? Like, what does that mean to you personally? Not the definition in the dictionary, but what does it mean to you personally? Yeah, and I think I don't, I probably wouldn't agree with the definition that is in the dictionary if there is a specific one, because what I have learned is that as soon as I decided to make a change, I was in recovery. And you know, I was never out of recovery when I maybe was still in the substances. I was always just finding other pieces or maybe stones on the path to recovery. And that recovery never stops in that I did develop some kind of system that alleviated my pain, but then the system stopped working. But my suffering was caused by still clinging to that system that used to work. 
And so I think recovery is seeing that, hey, this system is malfunctioning and the system doesn't work and you can do things differently and and having the courage to do that. And that's where I think you need to be completely supported by so many individuals in order to have that courage in to be able to try things that you've never tried before and to allow to to not fear the pain uh, and suffering um, that comes from a system that usually we have created. Um, Absolutely. And I think we can find like solace in like, oh, I know, I know, I think that pain is going to be bad, but at least I know this pain. This pain's familiar, even if I don't like it, like going back to my drug of choice or substance of choice, you know, or no choice, however you want to say it is like, that can still feel familiar. And so that feels safer than going out into the wild west of like, you know, what the possibility of pain that could be out there. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Um, the recovery is per- very personalized to each person and that that information even when you return to use that that was an experiment yeah you well, tried yeah, yeah i ahead. think we can have non abstinent recovery i think that you know this is again that old medical model that recovery only exists when I am not using, but I can be not using and not in recovery. That is also true. So it's so nuanced um, that, you know, if we limit it to just that, it makes recovery feel really hard to achieve or unattainable. And I think we need to, to broaden it and say like, recovery can be whatever you make it, as long as you are thriving rather than just surviving. And, and maybe sometimes you are just surviving in recovery, but you are putting that time together to get to a place where then you will be thriving. Awesome. Well, I know that you can answer the question I'm about to ask you in several different ways, but I was wondering if you would just think back because of course this is the beginning of the year and we have a lot of new listeners. And of course my podcast is new, but I wanted to find out How did you overcome obstacles and setbacks when you were first in recovery? Like, what did that look like? How did you do that? Yeah, I certainly had a lot of them, Um, you know, some of them being legal, um, some of them being personal, some of them just even being the physical setbacks and withdrawal symptoms. And, you know, it's amazing how resilient we really are. And you know, some days it was that I, sometimes I did it alone. Sometimes I did it with the help of people. I certainly had very loving, supportive parents that were able to be there for me to support me through it. But then I also had times where they had to cut me out of their lives and I needed to see what I was losing. So, you know, it's, it's really been, been me that has gone me through these setbacks. And I think when I see that in clients, I see it all the time, how amazing we are and how we keep fighting. And that desire, I think I had within me to know like, hey, life has got to be better than this. There has got to be a way. And I'm not willing to just let my life be this. 
that, you know, there I'm going to keep exploring and I'm going to keep trying. And like, thank God I did because where I am at now is the most beautiful place I've ever lived. And none of it would be possible without going through all those setbacks and hardships and, and figuring out who I am in the struggle. For sure. Yeah. Sound like you had one of those light bulb moments, like I can do this. I know I can do this. So that's awesome. Yeah. I think, I think believing in yourself is so important, but then also if you, if you don't have that capability to surround yourself with people who believe you can. So my next question leads me, and we've talked a little bit about it, but your treatments or therapies, what has been most effective? Well, we didn't really talk about therapies. We talked about treatment, but um, therapies, what have you, what has helped you recover in recovery? What kind of treatments or therapies have you found for yourself? Yeah, I think early on in recovery, I did, um, you know, the 12 step programs and that really taught me a lot about community. It taught me about, you know, assessing my relationship with self and others and the, that people could live without using these substances. It exposed me to all that. Um, I, so I think that that helped with my abstinence piece, I think that, you know, looking back now, I'm not sure the model was the most loving for me in terms of the shame that it also imposed on me because I couldn't get it right. Or I didn't have, um, you know, I wasn't, I felt so much shame never getting to a year when I was doing all the things. Um, there was nothing that I wasn't doing. So that, was very defeating for me. And it made me feel really sad and like a loser. And like, I couldn't figure it out. And, and I'm, I know I'm a smart person. So that was really, really hard on me. And so I think I was been really fortunate to have therapy, a lot of uh, professional therapy along the way. Um, wasn't necessarily a particular modality that they worked in. I also had some spiritual therapy, which was really, really beneficial for me because I came from a Christian background and somehow the message was communicated to me that, you know, you're good or bad, or, you know, you're an angel or a sinner. And, you know, if you look at society and, and how they stigmatize addiction, I know, I knew which category. I fit into. And I did this beautiful practice um, with my, uh, with Evie and she kind of showed me and walked me through all of the hardest times in my life. And, you know, just imagining like, instead of seeing these things as big failures, like imagining, you know, Jesus or God there with me. And, and cause I got through all those things and we do get through those things. And that was really powerful for me. So I've, I've had a lot of therapists and I change regularly when I feel like I grow them. Um, that has been an important piece for me is to have a space where I feel like safe, that I can tell people uh, what's going on for me. I think that that's been really important. I've done some EMDR uh, therapy, which, you know, was helpful, but never really anything that was, 
you know, off the charts. I will say I recently uh, did do some psychedelics and I was, I was fortunate enough to be connected to someone who was a professional in the field and it was done in a very, you know, uh, supervised way. And that for me has created another level of healing. I haven't experienced um, ever in my life. However, I want to put the caveat that had it come earlier when I wasn't prepared or ready for it, it wouldn't have had the impact that it's had, uh, you know, on me, which I am now six plus years into food addiction recovery. Six plus years. It can be done. That's yeah. amazing. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, the thing that's so beautiful is my recovery has changed every year. And so, you know, where I started with something that was much more structured and rigid, uh, I learned that that, you know, I outgrew it and it that's felt really suffocating and and also like kind of diety and eating disorder for me. So I needed to let go of, you know, the weighing and measuring. I needed to let go of the scale. I needed to let go of the focus on the food and start focusing on my life and what was true for me. Um, and what were the things in my life that were bringing me back to whether it was the food or the substances, those were the things I really feel like a return of symptoms for me now is just a signal that there is something not right in my relationship with self relationship with others, or maybe in what I'm doing, that it's not that, you know, something is, I'm doing something wrong. It's like, Hey, take notice, notice here. And, you know, that's, so I, I really pay attention to that now. It's like a stop sign. It's like, yeah. hey, let's stop. Let's take a look at what's going on because something else is happening here. Yeah. Where as used to, we would just go to the food to fix whatever the problem was and not even realizing that we had a problem. Right. That, that we're just trying to numb out. Yes, that's awesome. Well, th thank you. So I have some, um, I have a really good question. I'm excited about this one because um, this is near and dear to my heart. I think I talk about this a lot, but what are some of the common misconceptions about addiction and recovery that you would like to address? Oh, there's so many. This could be a whole episode. Yes, it could be. <laughs> <laughs> that, you know, there's only specifically, I want to start with that there's only a certain kind of person who's an addict. I think we are all on the spectrum of addiction. And for all of us, as long as we're consuming those addictive substances, we have the ability to become dependent on them. So whether that's food, whether that's alcohol, whether that's, you know, like opiates or prescription pills, you know, these, it is the substances that are the problem, not the person. And, and there's not this subset group of people that uh, just, you know, fit into that category that, you know, if you look in the mirror, you're seeing somebody that also has the ability to struggle with addiction. So I, I think that, you know, there's still the stigma that exist around people with addiction. And I have to tell you the best and smartest and most amazing people I've ever met in my life are people who have struggled with addiction and are in recovery. They tend to be the brightest, some of the most beautiful, um, caring, and maybe their overly sensitive nature uh, caused them to just not be able to take on the weight of the world. And so they needed to escape it in some way. 
But um, that is, for me, something that I've really noticed in the amazing, like, blessed role I get to play watching other people recover now. I, I think it's also really important if, like, we talk about this a lot and we have on the podcast, if someone tells you one way, there's only one way to recover that, yeah, that's that's not a healthy message. There is so many doors to recovery and there's so many doors to healing and whatever door you come through, you know, there is opportunity for growth and for you to evolve. And that I have worked with people like we talked about a little earlier who are in abstinent recovery. I've worked with people who are using a harm reduction approach I really want to clear up too about harm reduction being this thing where, you know, we're just enabling people to use. That is not what harm reduction is about. Harm reduction is about, again, somebody's well-being, right? So it's going to be, I'm going to do what's best for their health and well-being if them being abstinent keeps them in like a binge purge cycle and they do better to eat something every now and then, and they don't do that harmful behavior, then that's going to be what their recovery looks like. You know, if somebody's not, if recovery seems so unattainable because I have to do all of these things that I'm never even going to try, I, we have to make it more approachable for them. If that means keeping sweeteners, you know, if that means maybe they still have alcohol or, you know, cigarettes or whatever it is, right. We really are just looking to reduce the overall harms. And if somebody is, you know, dying from, from food addiction, then if they are drinking too much caffeine or, you know, having an alcoholic drink every now and then those are not the harms right? The harms is what they're dying of and is the fact that like they are consuming these ultra processed foods. So we will work around that piece and, and we don't have to worry about that other piece. If, if that is still going to be their outlet that they might need while they get to a place while they can address the food. So I think harm reduction is really just about like saving lives. And I think that's what we all want in this field of addiction, right? Naloxone um, is something that in the opiate community where if somebody overdoses on drugs, they may have access to a naloxone needle because it saves lives. So harm reduction saves lives. I want to be really clear on that um, as well. As you can tell, I'm a little bit passionate about it. I'm hoping to get a few people on the podcast this year to talk more about it. Uh, because I think it is very misunderstood in this field that it's really us just meeting the person where they're at and trying to improve their quality of life. That is what harm reduction is. So I think those are, I, I don't know, I probably talked about a lot and maybe I totally missed the question too. No, no, you t- you, you answered it. Uh, one of the things that, um, that I picked up on is, and uh, I say it like this, and maybe it'll resonate with you, is that um, addiction is not a moral failing. Mm-hmm. And yes, nobody chooses this. Nobody would want to choose this. This isn't, you know, however, it's, I also feel like it's a gift now in the oddest way. I feel like it's like, I wouldn't change any of it because this big, beautiful life I have now. Um, but I certainly never chose any of it either. And, you know, if I could certainly help prevent by us sharing what we do that, some of the pain and suffering that I went through, I would do that in a heartbeat for anyone, but I don't regret my own. 
That's right. I, I tend to think about it that way myself. I've actually told people, I think it's my superpower now because I do have a big heart, you know, for helping the next person. And I see that in you as well. I guess yeah. that's one of the reasons why I was so attracted to you as yeah. my coach. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Meant to be. Yes. In what way has your life changed since you were in recovery? Now you said five and a half years, was it? Or six, six years? Yeah, ago? it's, Darn I boy. think in February, it'll be six years. Um, I think, but, but again, I don't count anymore. And that was also one of the most loving things I ever did was to stop counting my days or, you know, that focus on like, like the length of sobriety means I am the best at sobriety, right? Every day is a good day when, you know, I am, I'm living my best life. And that is really how life has changed. I don't, I don't struggle. I don't, you know, and not saying I never struggle, but I can manage the struggle in a better way. I've learned, you know, boundaries have been hard. I've had to really address some of my people pleasing. I really had to turn inward rather than outward to figure out what I needed. And I used to think of, you know, my recovery in my life is like, oh, I need to like find all the pieces and then I'm like, I'll um, find them all and then I'll make them, that'll make me into a whole. And I really feel like when addiction happened, it was like all of me like exploded. And now I've just been like picking up the pieces of me over time. And, and that, you know, I don't need to be fixed. I just needed to be found and I needed to find myself. And the closer I get to myself and the more healing I do, the more I love myself. And like self-compassion was the thing I was the most resistant to. And now it's the number one thing I am the most focused on. And it has changed my life. I had compassion for every other human and the human condition, but I I felt like I should know better or I should do better. And, you know, we talk about, you know, don't be a shithead. And because that's my thing, it was always my thing. And so to have that compassion, to see that I was just always trying to do my best. I was just trying to figure it out. Like uh, that has been, I don't know. I know it's a nervous system regulator, but it feels like every time I do say it, it's like the biggest hug. And that's probably all Clarissa needed for most of her life was at more hugs. Absolutely. We can all use some more hugs. Okay. So I know this question is, is uh, really interesting to me because I want to know what a day in the life of being Clarissa in recovery is like, and I'm sure the listeners do too. What does it look like? Okay. I can take you definitely through a typical day. So I usually wake up around five, five thirty, and that is just au naturel. That is not because I set my alarm. It seems to be my wake cycle. And so I get up and I do now some meditation and I do some reading and I think about, you know, how I want to start my day. And then I go for a walk and I usually listen to a podcast on that walk. Right now I'm really into this um, flourishing with through addiction with Carl Eric Fisher. I love that podcast and I'm going to get him on the podcast and probably all of the guests he's had so far because everyone is like soul changing. 
And so I walk with the dog and then I come back and I usually do about a 20 minute high intensity workout. And why I do that workout is because I was in a car accident and I have a brain injury and I really feel like that you know, high intensity cardio really evens me out and makes me able to focus and concentrate a lot better for my day. It really improves my mood. And I love how Anna Lemke talks about like when we lean into pain, we get pleasure. And I feel that from that workout. I also feel that from the cold shower after that. Um, so then I usually start my day. I have MCT oil in my coffee, which again, you know, the fact that I have fat for breakfast blows my mind when I didn't eat fat from age 19 to 35 or 36. So I usually start my day with an MCT oil coffee. And then, you know, I might have some clients and then I now have lunch break. I never used to have lunch break. I used to eat and work at the same time. So now I will sit down, I'll do some kind of regulating, maybe breathing. I'll have a mindful meal where that's all I'm doing. And then I have this vagus nerve stimulator, which I'm sewing CJ and you can't see, but I use it after my meal um, because it's crazy when I use it. I'm I like stimulate the vagus nerve on for three minutes on each side. My stomach starts making these real loud digestive noises. That is, I mean, it makes sense now knowing, you know, when it puts me in the parasympathetic and that rest and digest state, but yeah, it's just, you know, sometimes I like my hacks. I enjoy them. And yeah, so I'll usually see clients in the morning, take my lunch break, and then I'll see some clients in the afternoon. Maybe I'll do a podcast. I try, you know, some nights I go late. Uh, some nights I work till 9 p.m. because I see clients on the West Coast. That's the coast it is. <laughs> and uh, I've also got group coaching. And that is something I always look forward to, whether it's getting to teach or just to get to do some coaching. I always make sure I make a beautiful time for dinner. Maybe I'll sneak in a walk with my best friends, Jody and Kara, and just get out by the water. I really feel grounded in nature. And usually I'm in bed by, you know, 9 p.m. Uh, because that is when my body likes to go to sleep. So that's pretty much, and I drink lots of water, you know, throughout the day. I have my element here, my electrolytes. Um, which I, I think is really interesting too, because I, I never like the taste of plain water. So I still really lean into my element more than plain water any day. You know, if that resonates with me as I, that's about my schedule too, not so much the client part and the podcast recording, although we will be adding a lot of the podcast recordings now, but um, I'm an early bird myself. I like getting up early. All right, then let's move on to um, support system. How important was a support system when you were in early recovery and continued to be in recovery? And tell me what your support system looked like. Yeah, I think, again, it's probably changed over time, but it's always been necessary because like recovery is hard and doing it alone sucks, you know. I think so many of us do, though, because we feel like, oh, you know, I can figure it out. But 
yeah, I would just say that you need people to help make it fun and you need to be able to laugh at yourself. And I would also say people in recovery have the best sense of humor, like the best. Like, oh, I've never laughed so hard. I went to this all-inclusive um, resort. It was called Sober Vacations. And I just got in a divorce. And so I went on my divorce a moon to Club Med in Turks and Caicos. And it was, they took all the alcohol off the resort. And it was just a bunch of people in recovery hanging around in an all-inclusive resort. I had never laughed so hard in my life. I had the best time. I made so many friends. And that is what recovery is about is like just being able to be around people and without the need to, to change yourself for them. That's what I think community has given me. And so whether that community has been friends, um, you know, there's been different people, obviously through different jobs I've worked with. They've been my community, I was part of a 12 step group. I was also part of like women for sobriety for a bit, always just dabbling, trying to find the right fit. And I will say like, I didn't really find a community that I loved. And so we created one (laughs) 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 because when I met Molly, it was like, Hey, uh, like we had, we were so aligned. We had the same ideas about you know, coming from that alcohol and drug field and how could we bring this to the food field and what did we need and what did we want? And, you know, it, it feels like this is a very loving community that now I feel like is my community, especially in that get together that we got to have earlier this year to just be with my people. That is so beautiful. And, and I also want the listeners to know, like, not all my people are in recovery. I have, you know, Jody and Kara, who are my some of my best friends. And I also have Colleen and Jacqueline and Vicka. And those individuals are not all in recovery. They're just, you know, and, and I also hate the word normal. There's no normal people, but they are just humans. You know, they're, they're non-recovery humans and they, they, they fill other areas of my life that maybe people in recovery can't. And so I think it's important to, to have communities that nurture all aspects of you because we are all so many pieces. Absolutely. I agree wholeheartedly. All right. What is something that you are still personally, what is something that you are still working on in your own recovery? I think um, challenging or challenges in this past year, one was uh, was diagnosed with ADHD. And so that was a bit challenging for me. It made me, my sense, like it, made, it allowed me to make sense of my life, um, a lot of my life and some of my impulsivity. I went on, I tried a few different medications, uh, settled on Concerta and, you know, really that wasn't the answer for me. So that has been really challenging. Um, but I've learned that I actually love myself better, not on any medications, uh, that I feel better and that, uh, that, so I manage, I think a lot of the time I thought I was using exercise to manage weight, but I think I was using it to manage mood and focus and concentration. So that helped with that. I think I still struggle in you know, personal relationships and communicating like romantic ones. My, I'm good with friends, but I think that navigating, um, 
partner relationships uh, has been very challenging for me because it's just who I am to be, try to be everything for the person I love. And so, you know, going into this year, I'm really hopeful to see, you know, what another relationship, if I meet someone looks like and how I can do that differently. I have also implemented this rule where I tell my friends everything instead of hiding things, um, which I used to do to protect, you know, a partner. So that's been new and it feels uncomfortable, but it feels like also the most loving thing I've done for myself in a while. So I'm just excited about the future um, because I think this year is going to be Molly and I are doing lots of traveling. And so, you know, that used to be something that I used to be like, oh, what am I going to do? How are we going to navigate the food? And I don't even think about it. It's just so second nature for us. And, and we, well, that's like, she's like my work wife. So that's, that's uh, that relationship. We're great. That's great. Okay. So this is the one you kind of touched on it just a bit of a bit because you said that you and Molly were traveling, but what is next? Like what, what are you planning? What's going on in 2024 and thereafter? What is the five year, 10 year? What does that plan look like for Clarissa? So I really try to only stay in at least one year um, because what I've learned is like, if I look back last year and I even tried to predict where I'd be at this year, it's not even close. It's always a crazy surprise. And I really am leaning into ease and possibility rather than forcing things. So I'm really excited. Uh, We're having a Globe and Mail article coming out about ultra processed food addiction. And I think that's, that's just a sign that, you know, the world is, is ready to hear it. And it's, you know, I had been certainly um, seeking to get this in the media for years. And I think had it come out, this is what I've learned, had it come out four years earlier when I was really pursuing this, it wouldn't have been ready for it. We didn't have the research. We didn't have, you know, sweet sobriety treatment uh, papers written on it and what recovery looks like. So I'm really excited about that. Molly and I and Dr. Jen Unwin and Heidi Giver are working on a consensus groups uh, conference that so behind the scenes, we've been interviewing researchers and clinicians in the field to kind of get us consensus on what food addiction should be called. Is it ultra processed food addiction? Is it food use disorder? Uh, So we're having a conference May 17th live streaming. Please come. Um, lot uh, on recording. If you can't come in person to London, I'd love to meet you in person, but there's going to be incredible speakers there. Robert Lustig, Anna Lemke, David Wiss, Nicole Avina, Erica Lafada, like uh, Chris Van Tulliken, who was just on the podcast. Like it is, it is going to be such an exciting day. And so that is something I'm also really looking forward to then Molly and I are just going to tour. We're doing like the Scandinavian sweet sobriety tour. I guess we're doing Norway and Switzerland and that's just personal um, because I think it's really good for us to like get away from our everyday life to just connect and then also see that's where we kind of learn what we need to change when we return to our home life. So uh, that's really exciting. Uh, We're, I'm helping with Dr. Claire Wilcox work on a food junkies book. 
So that is going to be coming to fruition very soon. And that will be, you know, essentially just the takeaways from the speakers that were had the most impact and in an easily readable way for listeners, uh, kind of the Coles notes, if you will, of the podcast, because the thing is that this field is still new. It's still in its infancy. So, you know, it's exciting that we get to be the ones to create some of these best practices. So we really have to make sure we're doing them um, with information and advice from leaders in the field as well. So I would say that, yeah, those are the things I'm most excited about. And I'll probably fall in love. That also, period. I'm just adding that. That's going to happen. That's going to happen. All right. We're putting that in there. That sounds awesome. Okay. So we're winding down here. And so I thought it would be fun to ask you your signature question. So if you could tell a younger version of yourself something about food addiction, what would it be? Mm. Yeah, I think I would tell a younger version of myself about addiction that this is your thing. You're going to struggle with this thing but it's going to make you into who you are. And then it's going to become your gift that you're going to be able to help other people recover from this thing and you'll figure it out. So just keep going. And, you know, there's so much information and support out there and you're not alone. And yeah, you got this and I love you. That's what I would also say. And I would give little Clarissa a hug. That's awesome. I think that's a good place to end on I love you, little Mm. Clarissa. So thank you. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me, CJ. This has been awesome. Thank you for joining me this week for Food Junkies Recovery Stories. Make sure you join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group. I'm sweet enough. Please subscribe to our show so that you never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in today's story, we would appreciate a ratings on iTunes. If you've been inspired by today's show and would like to be a guest, please reach out through the email provided in the show notes. If you have additional questions, CJ is a food addictions professional and works one-on-one with clients. You can find her email address and website in the show notes. Thank you for joining us.